Well, there are some things that are not supposed to happen. I wasn't supposed to lose my keys, or burn the toast, or oversleep, turn up late for the exam, forget my PIN number, forget her name, lose my phone, leave the washing in the rain, or miss my appointment. just wasn't supposed to happen like that. When a group of Belgian football fans put Wales into their sat-nav to go and see the Wales-Belgium match in Cardiff a few months ago, they were not supposed to end up in a village called Wales near Rotherham. When the burglar, Emmanuel Jerome, burgled a house and used the uh, lights on his mobile phone, he was not supposed to inadvertently film the whole incident (laughs) and cause him to be guilty. At Nelson Mandela's funeral, the signer was not supposed to be a fake and not know how to sign. More seriously, when Neville Chamberlain returned from Berlin to talk to Adolf Hitler, Germany was not supposed to invade Poland. Um, When the Arab Spring happened, he wasn't supposed to lead to anarchy and to ISIS. When Sephardine Reski walked onto that beach in Tunisia just recently, according to everyone else, he was not supposed to massacre scores of innocent holiday tourists. There are some things that happen in life when we're left thinking, is this really part of the script? Is this really supposed to happen? And as Christians, we may well wonder, is God really in control? Is this really his plan for my life? Is this really the script? So I wonder if you reflect on the last number of years in your life. How's it gone? Is it as you would have hoped? Maybe it's teenagers. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's your health. Or childlessness. Or singleness. Or old age. Maybe it's spiritual battles. The same spiritual battles that you've experienced for years. Maybe you find it harder and harder to be a Christian. In our society at the moment, it is not easy. It is increasingly less and less respectable and plausible. Perhaps as you reflect on your life, you used to be more zealous than you are today. And you're left thinking, God, what are you doing? Is this really part of the script? Was it really supposed to happen? As I reflect, on the last year or so, there are certainly times I've thought like this. Is this really your plan for my life? Is this really supposed to happen? Well, as Jesus gathers his disciples for the Passover meal in the upper room, we can imagine that this is just what they would have been thinking. Because there was euphoria as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the king has come. But here, in the upper room, he says he's going to be betrayed. He's going to leave them to a place where they cannot come. And Peter, their leader, even Peter, is going to deny him. The worst of it is that Jesus says he's going to die. And so the disciples were thinking, well, how can the death of the Messiah possibly lead to the redemption of Israel? How does that work? 
we're obviously very familiar with the story, but just imagine what it was like pre-resurrection. How is that possibly going to be a good thing? Jesus, what is going on? Is this really part of the script? And in this conversation, in the upper room, Jesus wants his people to understand the significance of his death. He wants his people to see, then, as well as us today, that Jesus' death is supposed to happen. It is part of the script, and it's a glorious script. It couldn't be better. There are three things we learn today about Jesus' death. And if we want to live fruitful lives for Jesus, as we are thinking about in this series, then these three things are important for us to understand. Jesus' death, number one, it is central to his plan. Number two, it is where God's glory is displayed. Number three, it is the model for Christian relationships. This is the first thing about Jesus' death. It is central to his plan. Now Jesus says what is going to happen is going to happen to fulfill scripture. So he, John quotes uh, Psalm 41 verse 9. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Jesus knows that one of his disciples, the ones he chose, will fulfill this, this psalm. It's a psalm of David, where, where David the king cries out to God for mercy. He's in trouble. He has enemies. They're spreading lies about him. They're ganging up on him. And even his closest friend, the one who shared his bread, which is a, a symbol of loyalty, has turned against him. And Jesus is telling his disciples this now, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. You will believe that I'm the one I claim to be, the Messiah, the Son of Almighty God. I am the Son who knows the future. In the uh, prophetic book of Isaiah, a distinguishing attribute of God, as opposed to the idols, is this. It's that he knows the future. It marks him out as God. So just listen to this from Isaiah 46, verse 9. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. My purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. See, we may daydream about the future, the wonderful things that we're going to do, or we may be crippled with anxiety about the future, the terrible things that are going to happen. But for all of us, the future is elusive. It's totally out of our control. That's because we're all creatures. But for God, it's not like that. He knows the future because he controls the future. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that even his betrayal by one of his closest friends is under his control. So much so that he even chose the person who would then betray him. And Jesus can only know this because he's the son. So much so that what we do with the son, what we do with Jesus, is ultimately what we do with God. So Jesus is going to be betrayed. But just notice, look at verse 21, how he feels about it. We're told this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. See, it may well have been central to his plan to be betrayed and to die, but it was not easy. We, we get here a real glimpse, don't we, of the humanity as well as the deity of Jesus, fully God, fully man. To Jesus, the thought of betrayal and death 
is terrifying. It is an awful thing to be let down by a close friend, to experience the pain of relational breakdown, and God knows that. And it is an awful thing to die. We live in a society that is increasingly less afraid of death. We're afraid of the process of dying, but we're not afraid of death itself. But what we see is that without God, we should be afraid of death. It is a terrible thing to face the wrath of God. And Jesus is troubled in spirit. He makes it crystal clear in verse 21, one of you is going to betray me. He's quoted the psalm, and then he says this. But the disciples just have no idea what he's talking about. We see that one of them, called the disciple Jesus loved, which is most probably a reference to John, was sat next to him. Now just to visualize it, um, in the upper room, the disciples were sat on a U-shaped sofa um, with a table in between, in the middle. They would have been lying diagonally on the sofa, faces inwards, legs outwards, leaning on one shoulder with one hand free uh, to eat the food. Now, at the, at the top of the ark, or the bottom of the U, if you see it, the U, uh, Jesus is sat, the host. Either side of him are the, are the two special places for the guests of honour. So for John to speak to him suggests that he is in one of those places. He's a guest of honour. And Peter speaks to him. Maybe he whispers and says, ask him which one he means. Jesus, well John asks, and then Jesus dips the bread into the dish and gives it to Judas. As he does, Satan, who had previously prompted him in verse 2, now enters Judas. Now for Judas to be that close, it suggests that he was the person in the other special place, the guest of honour. Perhaps this is Jesus' final plea to his betrayer. Don't do it. But Judas, tragically, is determined he's gone too far. And so Jesus then says, do it quickly. None of the other disciples have any idea what's going on. They think Judas has gone to buy provisions or perhaps give to the poor. We would expect John to understand, wouldn't we? But he doesn't say anything. Maybe he is too overwhelmed. We don't know. But certainly what we see is that no one suspects Judas. He has entirely deceived them. We're not to think of Judas as wandering around having red horns in his head, as if it was always going to be Judas. It's not like that at all, is it? He's kept his guard. On the outside, he's utterly conformed. But on the inside, he has gone too far. So he takes the bread and he goes. And it was night. Darkness has come. Judas is, of course, for us, a sobering warning. It's possible to be here at church on a Sunday, to be a member of a church, to conform to Christian living on the outside, for everyone else to think you're the real thing, but on the inside to be far away from God. And what is sobering is that God knows exactly what is going on in our hearts. We cannot fool God. So Judas goes. And the process of Jesus' death is kicked into action. And yet despite their confusion as we read this, when the disciples look back on this event, they would have understood perfectly, because this is just what Jesus said would happen. His death, it is central to his plan. It is no accident. Despite the pain, despite the trauma of his betrayal and death, it is not outside of God's control. And Jesus wants us to know this. 
He's revealed it ahead of time so that we would know who he is. He is the Son of God. And so this morning, as we, as we sit here together, we are confronted with the reality that God has a plan for his world. He has a plan that he's working out. Just recently I saw a, an interview with the comedian Eddie Izzard. And he was explaining to his interviewer why he has shifted his faith position. So he has gone from being an agnostic to an atheist. And he was asked why. And he said, well, it's, it's very simple. For him, the reason is, as he looks at the world, there's no plan. Nothing. And so that is why he has changed. And he's right and he's wrong, isn't he? He's right, because if there is a God, then there's a plan. But he's wrong to think there isn't. And the Bible tells us that God has a wonderful plan for this world. It is bigger than any of our individual desires for happiness. It is to bring all things under the rule of his son, Jesus Christ, to remake this broken world, to restore things, to bring peace, finally and fully. And there is no better plan than that. It will never happen through human strategy. It will only happen through God. And in God's plan, what we see is that even evil is under his control. And just think, if the, if the betrayal and the slaughter of the Son of God is part of his plan, if that is under his control, well, so too is everything else. And that is a great comfort for us this morning. Our impersonal circumstances can be chaotic, confusing, overwhelming. But God knows exactly what he's doing. Jesus knows the future because he controls it. And so the, the message for us is quite simple. We are called to trust. That is what he wants us to do this morning. We are called to trust in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To see that Jesus is the Son who reveals the Father and to trust him. Ultimately, we are not called to fully understand God or fully understand our circumstances or even ourselves. We are called to trust in God. Jesus' death, it is central to his plan. The first thing we see. The second is this, number two, it is where God's glory is displayed. Jesus knows that his death is imminent since arriving in Jerusalem. He's been preparing his disciples for it. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Just have a look at verse 31. He says this, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. It's a bit of a mouthful. When the Son is glorified, God, the Father, is glorified. When the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified. This is to say that the glory of the Son is inextricably bound up, linked to the glory of the Father. That's because the Father and the Son are one. Our God is one God in three persons. In the Godhead, God is divided without separation, but united without confusion. God is three in one and one in three. Now, even in our individualistic society, we get a sense of this. Just think of competitive dad. Now, competitive dad goes to his child's sports fixture. Maybe it's his son, maybe it's a football match. And uh, competitive dad takes this very, very seriously. He has trained his son to perfection. He has planned for this big day. And he goes along on the sideline, and he is no passive observer. 
competitive dad is all over it. He takes it very seriously because how his son does is a massive reflection of what he's like as a father. This is the moment, isn't it? This is the chance for him to show off his greatness as a father. My son is going to win, whatever happens. And I imagine that any children's referee will tell you that competitive dads are quite difficult on the sideline. The victory of the son is a victory for the father. So the question we're asking is this, what is it that will bring such glory to God? Father and son, this is the hour, as John describes it, this is the the climax of his ministry, this is the moment where God will display his glory, the father and the son, but what is it? It's the question. And it's an important question for us because the Bible teaches that we were made, all of us were made, to, to, to see and enjoy the glory of God. Like a knife is made to cut and a piano is made to be played, we have been made for God. To see his glory, to enjoy him, to delight in him, as it says on the poster. So we need to know where it is. We need to know what we were made for. And Jesus says now, this is the moment, this is the time for the display. It's here, it's the great exhibition, the Millennium Dome, the Olympic ceremony. We're going to see God's glory. But where do we see it? See, what is striking is that the glory of Almighty God is not seen in some global display of his creative power. There are no miracles, fireworks, bright lights. The glory of God is seen at the cross where the Son gives up his life. This is where God's glory is displayed. I was watching a debate recently between the late atheistic writer Christopher Hitchens and uh, the American pastor Douglas Wilson. And Hitchens was describing in great detail and with great animation the phenomenon that is a black hole. And he was arguing that this is where true beauty and majesty and glory can be seen. Do you want to see the best thing that we have, the best thing you could possibly imagine as a human being? He says, look at this black hole. And as he described it, he commented that for him the thought that God would reveal himself in some semi-literate part of the Middle East 2,000 years ago, well, that's just nonsense. To the great minds of our age, the cross is foolish, even barbaric. But the Bible teaches us that what is truly glorious, what truly shows off the greatness of God, is not a black hole, though it does say something of his greatness. It's not a miraculous sign or a great wonder. It is Jesus giving up his life on a cross. Well, why is that? Well, because this is where God gets involved in our lives. It's where God shows us that he cares. It's where he deals with our deepest problem, our sin. It's where he deals with us as we are, broken, guilty, sinful. It's where God shows off the glory of his grace, his undeserved kindness and love. So John the Baptist says, look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus' death, it is where God's glory is displayed. See, it reveals that God, though holy, righteous, and pure, utterly unique in his transcendence, cares about us. And he longs to show mercy and compassion and favor. This is true glory. And there is nothing better.
See, our righteousness is so often inconsistent and hypocritical. Some sins we love, some sins we hate. Our love is so often fickle and conditional. We find it really hard to love even those we love. And yet God is glorious because he loves what is good and he hates what is evil. And at the cross, his wrath and his mercy meet. So that he deals with sin and yet shows mercy to sinners. It is where God's glory is displayed. So for us, if the cross is where God is most glorified, we need to ask ourselves, is this what we most delight in and enjoy and marvel at as Christians and as a church? At Magdalen Road, with this prospect of a new building, it raises the issue of what the church is really all about. What does Magdalen Road stand for? What kind of church is it? What kind of church does Magdalen Road want to be known for? Many things, I presume. Maybe a church which is respectable, active, relevant, organized, disorganized, growing, contemporary, community-focused, socially involved, gospel-focused, biblical, orthodox, all good things. But if the death of Jesus displays the glory of God, then surely we want to be known as a church which is marked by the cross. As people who believe they are sinners saved by Christ alone. As people who find their greatest joy in knowing the love of God shown in Christ. As a people whose greatest boast is Christ. All I have is Christ. As a people marked by humility, joy, trust, confidence, love, compassion, justice, service, forgiveness. It is the cross where we see God's glory displayed. That is going to happen corporately as individually our lives are transformed and marked by the cross. And this is what we see in our, our final point here. The death of Jesus, it is central to his plan. It is where God's glory is displayed. And finally, it is the model for Christian relationships. See, Jesus begins to prepare his people for his departure. He will soon be gone. And he says where he's going, they cannot come, at least not for now. And as he prepares to leave, he gives them a new command, a command which will control their relationships. It is to be the governing ethic of the Christian community. Verse 34, have a look with me. Jesus says this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is his new command. Some of you may be just thinking, well, what about Leviticus 19.18? sure some of you were. It says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone amongst your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm thinking, Jesus, is this really new? Have you not read the Old Testament? Embarrassing. He has, it's a kind of mistake. See, what is new is not so much the command, but the model. Love one another as I have loved you. That's the difference. See, Christians are to love each other in a way that Jesus loves the church. That's the model. And there is going to be something about this love. Because it's supernatural. It's powerful. It's authenticating. Verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. See, this supernatural love 
expressed between Christians will show people that we are truly the disciples of Jesus, that Christianity is truly true. It will do that because what was Jesus' love like? It was supernatural. It was utterly self-giving, costly, consistent, unchanging. It was unlike anything we have ever seen in this world. And we get a glimpse of it in this following scene because Peter wants to know where Jesus is going. And Jesus says that, Peter, you can't come. Peter, who we know is pretty outspoken, insists, and he said, verse 37, he says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. But Jesus responds with these sobering words, verse 38. (laughs) You really lay down your life for me? (laughs) Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. See, Peter is desperate to follow Jesus. But he also wants to protect himself. In the end, Peter is unable to be the person he wants to be. He doesn't actually love Jesus as much as he wants to. Like all of us, he's a coward. But wonderfully, Jesus knows that. He knows him better than he knows himself. And he still loves him. He'll go to the cross for him. If God's love for us was based on our personal merits or loveliness, we would be lost. But praise God, it is not. Jesus loves his people much more than his people love him. It's not that Peter will lay down his life for Jesus, though that is at least not here. It is that Jesus will lay down his life for Peter. He'll die for his friend. His friend who he knows will deny him. That is supernatural love. That is divine love. That is extraordinary love. And it is just the love that Jesus calls us to follow. Jesus' death, it is the model for Christian relationships. As Christians, we are called to love each other. Love is to be the mark of our relationships. Love which is patient and kind, which does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. Love which is not rude or self-seeking or easily angered. Love which keeps no record of wrongs. Love which does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Love which always protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. Love which involves laying your life down for other people. Love modelled to us at the cross. See, as um, Christianity in our society becomes increasingly less plausible, respected, and less believed, I wonder if you ever find yourself thinking, if only there was just something that might turn the tide. Something that might stop teenagers foolishly falling away. Something that might make people stop and think. Some new, irrefutable evidence where we could say, look. Well, Jesus says, here it is. Love one another. In the early church, the church was a largely persecuted minority, persecuted by individuals and by the state. And the church had many martyrs as it clashed with paganism and the Roman Empire. And there was a a second century Christian apologist, a defender of the faith called Churchillian, and he, he wrote in defense of the Christian faith. And what is interesting is that one of the things he, he notices is how pagans viewed the early Christians. 
And what is remarkable is that what they were most struck by with the Christians was the love they had for each other. So he writes in one of his books, recording what the pagans said about the Christians. And this is what he says. This is what the pagans said. See how they love one another. How ready they are even to die for one another. So wouldn't it be wonderful if people said that about me, about us, about you? It is as Christians love each other consistently, deeply, unceasingly, faithfully, year after year after year, that people will see that we are truly born of God. See, skeptics may have their reasons, so they think, to dismiss Jesus Christ, but here is an evidence that cannot be denied. We know, don't we, it is so often the case that when people get converted, it's because they are struck by the love and witness of other Christians. Our discipleship is integrally related to our evangelism. It is as we grow in love for each other that we provide the context for people to see what difference the gospel makes. As that happens, people will see and they will hear and they will see what difference it makes. That's why bringing people to church is so important. It's why introducing non-Christian friends to Christian friends is so important. As people hear our message, they'll see its impact. We may not all be gifted evangelists, but we are all called to love other Christians so that people see what difference the gospel makes. Jesus' death, it is the model for Christian relationships. So as we close, there is an obvious challenge for us. And it's this, does love describe our relationships in the church? I find it very easy to ask, do people love me? But it's a better and more penetrating question to ask, am I loving other people? The question assumes I know people and people know me. See how easy it is for church to be somewhere I go rather than a people I belong to. Because this love we're talking about is really only possible when we know each other well, in such a way that is enriching because we have the joy of sharing life together, but that is also challenging because we will offend each other. The picture the New Testament gives of Christian relationships is that of intimate, meaningful, deep, long-lasting, mutual relationships. Relationships which are hard, which cross age and racial barriers. And the question is, do I know people like that? And do people know me like that? Do people know my strengths and weaknesses, my joys and sorrows? Do I know other people's? Certainly convicting for me, and I hope it is for you. Because it could well be that church has just never been anything like this for you at all. And so let me urge all of us today to make one step, one change, one step in the direction of obedience. Maybe it's staying around after church for a bit longer to chat to people. Maybe it's joining a home group. Maybe it's beginning to share your life with just one other Christian, meeting to pray, to discuss accountability questions, to get to know each other in a more meaningful way. Maybe it's forgiving someone for something that you're holding against them. Maybe it's telling someone you have something against them. Let us this morning move towards Jesus' command. Not forgetting, Satan will want to do all he can to destroy Christian relationships. By the power of the Holy Spirit, let us love one another.
as we see the extent of Jesus' love, as we think about his death, if we want to live fruitful lives, we need to see his death. It is central to his plan. He really is in control. We really can trust Jesus. It is where God's glory is displayed. We are called to worship Jesus. And it is the model for Christian relationships. We're called to imitate Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do give you praise this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for his love for us, shown at the cross. His love which is beyond our understanding. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to understand more of that love this morning. In such a way that moves us to trust in him, to delight in him, and to imitate him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.